Hi, welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 91, Loyalty. Hello, everyone. I am so glad you're here. I am actually recording in Wyoming at my grandma's house, and there's not really a good place here to record because there are 17 people sleeping in my grandma's house, and it is not large. And so I am out here in her garage, which is honestly not the best acoustic. So hopefully think today sounds okay. Um, I've got a blanket over my head to make the sound better. So you're welcome. Trying my hardest here. Now you've got a really good visual in your head. But I wanted to get this out to you no matter what. So let's dive into it. Today we are learning about two women, which is so exciting. The story of Ruth and of Hannah. We are going to go through their stories, and as we do, I want you to be paying attention how they react to trials. Their loyalty to the Lord is tested in the same way that ours is tested now. It's easy to be loyal to the Lord in good times, but how do you react when things are hard? Is your love for the Lord during those times increased and strengthened? Your resolve to your commitment to Him firm Or is it the opposite? Do you let yourself get farther from him and your commitment more unsteady? Do you let yourself get angry at him? So let's talk about how our ladies for the day chose. First, we have Ruth. The book of Ruth, aside from being a lovely story, helps us understand some of the family history of Jesus. Now, for today's purposes, we aren't going to get quite this far in her story. So I just want to point out that Ruth, who is a Moabite, not an Israelite, eventually marries a man named Boaz, and this is more toward the end of her story. And she has a son named Jesse, who is then the father of the future king of Israel, David. And as we know, Jesus is a direct descendant of King David. And I think it's just so significant that the Savior came through a line that was not just the blood of Israel. It came through a woman that was grafted in to be part of Israel. Remember at that point that it was contrary to the law of Moses to marry outside of Israel. The Lord rewarded Ruth's loyalty to him and to Naomi by allowing Ruth to remarry and give birth to a son that would eventually be the grandfather of King David, whose posterity would eventually be Jesus Christ. God works through Ruth to bring about the most important event, the most important change in the history of the world. And I think that's so cool because That grafting in, that bringing into the fold of Israel is what we are focused on as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints all the time. That should be our primary objective, is to gather in the house of Israel. And as we know, the house of Israel now at this point is not just blood. It's It's not just being a descendant of somebody who was through blood born into the house of Israel. Today, anyone can be adopted into the house of Israel when they accept the gospel and be given lineage through that. So I think it's just so significant that the Savior, his bloodline, happened through adoption into the house of Israel. Think about how we think about eternity and what our purpose is as we move on and we grow and become creators and gods ourselves. We will attain joy through the continual creation and nurture of our posterity. What an incredible blessing Ruth received for her loyalty to have this royal bloodline be added to her family. Okay, so let's talk about the first part of Ruth's story. 
The family of Elimelech, which was comprised of him, his wife Naomi, and her two sons, traveled out of Bethlehem, out of Israel, to flee from famine. They traveled to a land called Moab, and it seems shortly after Naomi's husband died, and her two sons married Moabite women. One was named Oprah and the other Ruth. And after about ten years, both the brothers died, leaving two widows and then their already widowed mother. Naomi, who is the mother, decided to return to the land of Judah because she'd heard that the famine was over. And she tried to persuade Ruth and Oprah, the two wives, to go live back with their families. She said in chapter 1 of Ruth, verse 8, And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Isn't that a lovely way to try and get someone to leave you? Go home, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have been kind to me and to my sons. So they both still protest, not wanting to leave her. Can't you just imagine the beautiful relationship that they must have? She then tells them that she is too old to marry again and she won't have any more sons that they might marry. And she rhetorically asks something like, and even if I could, would you wait for them till they're grown? No. It grieves my soul that this has happened to me and is affecting you. They all cry again, not wanting to leave Naomi. And Orpah, actually, I think I said her name. <laughs> I said Oprah before. Orpah. Her name is not Oprah. It's Orpah. Orpah decides at this point that she will go back to her family, but Ruth chooses to stay. Naomi tried to use Orpah leaving as a final way to convince Ruth to leave saying, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone, back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And then Ruth delivers one of the most powerful and well-recognized speeches in the Bible. Chapter 1, starting in verse 16. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. And the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Ruth is showing such loyalty to Naomi as she faces a future that really is without much hope. And in this hard time for both of them, she turns to the true God of Israel, and not only turns to him, but makes a covenant with him that death would be the only acceptable reason for her to part with Naomi. At this point, Naomi is convinced of Ruth's determination to go with her, and I'm sure gratefully accepts this bold loyalty. When they get to Bethlehem, people recognize Naomi and call her that, but she doesn't want to be called that anymore. She said in verse 20, Call me not Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter or very sad, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. So we see here a contrast in how the two women are dealing with the loss of their family. Granted, Naomi lost her husband and both of her sons, but Ruth is showing full dedication to the Lord, and Naomi is angry at God for how he has dealt with her. Okay, so there's a whole lot more to Ruth's story that's so cool, but for our purposes, this is where I'm going to stop and move on to our next woman, Hannah. A man named Elkanah had two wives. One was Penina, Penina, 
We're going to call her Penina because Penina sounds like Panini. <laughs> Penina was able to have children. The other was Hannah, who suffered from infertility and was not able to have children. The time came for the yearly sacrifice offering in Shiloh. Samuel chapter 1, verse 4. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. The next verse is a little unclear to me, but it seems to me that Peninnah seems to torment Hannah about not giving birth to any children. And I read a little bit about this. We don't really know. Um, but people theorize that perhaps Peninnah was a second wife um, after, I guess it was traditional, after 10 years, if the first wife didn't have any children, that, that the man would take a second wife in order to have posterity. And so he loved Hannah. And so it's possible that Hannah kind of felt like the, the, the wife that was not the favorite. So perhaps because of this, she then was not very nice to Hannah. It says in verse 6, And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. So Hannah is super depressed, and she's not eating. She's devastated that she hasn't had a child yet, which I know that only those who really struggle with infertility can even begin to comprehend the pain that that causes. Longing for a child that doesn't come, and then you add in all the cultural issues that came with Hannah living at the time that she lived where her value was directly correlated with her ability to bear children. So Elkanah, her husband, comes to her, and he's clearly worried and says, Hannah, why weepest thou? Why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? Hannah comes back to the temple to pray about her circumstance, and her praying is witnessed by a priest named Eli, who thinks that she's drunk because she is mouthing the words of her prayer without saying words to the Lord, and she's crying, and I'm sure it sounds like she was maybe quite a spectacle. Verse 10, And she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look upon the infliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. So she's promising the same promise that Samson's mother promised. She promised to raise him as a Nazarite with his life dedicated to those covenants and to the Lord. So Eli, the priest, approaches her and asked her how long she had been drunk and that she needs to put away her wine. And Hannah replied, saying, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thy handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. Hannah does go on eventually to have a son, Samuel, who has his own great story. Okay, so we're going to stop there with Hannah. What did Ruth and Hannah have in common? They both chose to reach for the Lord in hardship. And I love in the case of Hannah, when Eli tells her that God will grant her petition, she chooses faith and moves forward with joy in her heart, even before she knew quite what that fulfillment was going to look like. Ruth chooses the Lord and loyalty to her mother-in-law 
over a much more certain future back with her family. So ask yourself, what do you do when things get rocky in your life? Is your reaction to pull away from the Lord or to draw close to him? In Doctrine and Covenants chapter 88, verse 63, it says, Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. The Lord's promise here is fulfilled in both Ruth and Hannah's life. As you read the rest of their stories, you see that the Lord provides for them. The Lord comfortingly tells us that his arm is lengthened all the day long, waiting for us to reach back. We've all had times in our lives when the problems in front of us seem too big, too hard, especially when we are a little distant from the Lord. I think often we find ourselves either either for a moment or for a longer period of time asking the kinds of questions that are in the hymn, Where Can I Turn for Peace? So I'm going to read that. Where can I turn for peace? Where is my solace? When other sources cease to make me whole? When with a wounded heart, anger, or malice, I draw myself apart, searching my soul. Where, when my aching grows, where, when I languish, where in my need to know, where can I run? Where is the quiet hand to calm my anguish? Who, who can understand? He only one. He answers privately, reaches my reaching. In my Gethsemane, Savior and friend, gentle the peace he finds for my beseeching. Constant he is and kind, love without end. It's beautiful to me to think about how the Lord perhaps didn't need to atone for our sorrow and pain. It's just sin that permanently separates us from God. But he did. That was part of the plan of our Heavenly Father that the great and last sacrifice includes sorrow and pain, so he would know how to succor us, so that we had somewhere to put that pain. Elder Evan A. Schmutz said, Many of us have pleaded with God to remove the cause of our suffering, and when the relief we seek has not come, we have been tempted to think that he is not listening. I testify, even in those moments, he hears our prayers and has a reason for allowing our afflictions to continue and will help us bear them. In an intimate and reflective passage, Paul tells us of an unnamed thorn in his flesh, which caused him great pain and brought him three times to his knees, begging the Lord to take it from him. In answer to Paul's prayers, the Lord did not remove the thorn, but did speak peace and give understanding to his heart, saying, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. With a new understanding, Paul was able to accept and be grateful for the thorn he was given. He said, Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If I may speak to you individually, all ye that labor or are heavy laden, may I suggest that your personal struggles, your individual sorrows, pains, tribulations, and infirmities of every kind are all known to our Father in heaven and his Son. Take courage, have faith, and believe in the promises of God. The purpose and mission of Jesus Christ included that he would take upon him the pains and sicknesses of his people, take upon him their infirmities, and succor his people according to their infirmities. To fully receive these gifts our Savior has so freely offered, we must learn that suffering in and of itself does not teach or grant us anything of lasting value, 
unless we deliberately become involved in the process of learning from our afflictions through the exercise of faith. He may not give you what you ask for. He may have a different plan for you that's far better than the one that you could plan for yourself, but it might not feel that way in the moment. When we read stories like Hannah or Ruth, we are reading a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. But your life is not a complete story yet. You are in the middle of it. You are still in control of how you react to your trials. Do you think that Ruth thought things were easy when her husband died and she followed her widowed, destitute mother-in-law to a land that she's never seen? No, I'm sure she was scared sometimes. I'm sure she wondered what was going to happen or how this was going to work. I'm sure she was lonely and sad. She had to work hard to provide for Naomi. And there were times in her story when she could have concluded that things had gone horribly wrong and that the Lord had forgotten her. But even if she did have moments like that, we get to see the overall pattern of Ruth's life. She trusted the Lord. She stayed loyal to Naomi. She worked hard and eventually, the Lord made of her life beauty from ashes. While Hannah was in the midst of many years of infertility, do you think that she ever cried to the Lord, not understanding why this was happening to her? Do you think that she ever felt doomed to an unfair fate? Yes, I'm sure she did. She was in the middle of it. She couldn't see what was waiting for her in the future. And that's where we are too. We are in the middle of it. That's why Hannah needed the Lord. That's why we need the Lord. He can give us hope when we feel hopeless. He can lend us strength that we don't have on our own. He can give us somewhere to turn for peace when peace is painfully elusive. In this next scripture, I'm going to replace the word temptation with trial because I think it applies just as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. There is no trial taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able but will with the trial also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. I'm sure you've heard the saying that says that you will not be given more than you can handle. And I love the clarification that this scripture gives us. So the original word is temptation, but I think trial fits so well. And when it says, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, I think that can apply to when we have a trial we might be tempted to pull away from God. But that doesn't have to be the case. And the clarification that we're given here is that there is made a way for us to escape, that we may be able to bear it. So it's not that we're going to not be given things that are harder than we can handle on our own. There is a way to escape. There is a way to handle it. And what is that escape that was provided? What is the help and strength provided for a trial we cannot handle on our own? Alma chapter 7 verse 12. And he will take upon him death that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. The Greek root for the word succor is run to the help of. He has taken our infirmities that he might be filled with mercy for your sake, that he may know according to the flesh how to run to you, to bear you up, 
to be that indispensable partner that you need to handle all the hard handed to you. You were never intended to do this alone. When he runs to you, it doesn't mean that he's there to completely take away that trial. Be like Ruth, be like Hannah, and in your trials, reach for the Lord who is already reaching for you. Isaiah said this of the gospel, The Lord is here to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to comfort all that mourn, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You are in the middle of that creation of beauty from ashes. I believe with all my heart that the Lord is always enough. Nothing, no life circumstances, no sin, no hurt or sorrow is too big for him. He will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind you, and he will take upon him your infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to run to you. He is there for you, I promise. Show patience and loyalty to him, and you will have the transcendent opportunity to bear witness of his loyalty to you. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.